Happy Canada Day. Oh, is that a thing? It, it's totally a thing. And it's such like, a thing that it actually happens before America Day. Wait, it happens before what day? America Day. America Day. That's what I'm calling Independence Day, America Day. <laughs> I'm not mad about it. That's great. It's called uh, America Day. Why, uh, why do you celebrate Canada Day, July 2nd? That is the day we uh, started as a country in 1867. Yeah, but you're yeah. still like July 1st. related to... The, technically, the, the queen Great is the yeah. technically the queen is still the head of state. How can uh, you how can you be your own country and have a queen from a different country? Because she exercises zero actual um, legislative control. Sure, sure, sure. But who's your queen? Elizabeth. Yeah. See, that makes me feel like you're not a real country. Yes, but let's look at the Bible. Okay. And what kind of rulers? Did they have in the Old Testament? Listen, I have no problem against having a king or a queen rule. I mean, that's basically what most Americans think the president is anyway. Right. Uh, but my problem is, like, our president is the president of our country. So, but here's the thing, though. Here's not the thing. other ones. But here's something really interesting. Uh-huh. Our prime minister, who yes. is probably equally imbecilic, uh, <laughs> uh, is... Uh, actually has more legislative power than the president of the United States in terms of like over their own country, obviously. Uh, but I mean, like, okay, yeah, yeah. like um, in terms yeah, of the, the way the constitution is, there's less checks and balances against the prime minister than mm -hmm. there are against a president because when the prime minister chooses to do something, he has to, he whips his whole party and they vote for it at, at the, at, at the house of commons. Yeah. While the president, if he wants to get some things passed, he needs Congress to actually vote on it. Just because he wants it doesn't mean it's going to happen. Right, right, right. But I feel like you still haven't really dealt with the question that I posed. Which is? Or the problem. What? The 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 queen of your country yeah. is from a different country. That yes, makes but we're all feel... strangers in a strange land. Okay. So you're just gonna keep dodging this one. Uh yeah. I, Which is I, fine, I, that's what I would do. I, I we I have listen, I have no problem with it. It's it's uh how did oh. you celebrate Canada Day? I, I celebrate Canada Day by um uh making fun of uh not making fun but having a little bit of a joke with a chasuble on yeah, Twitter. Yeah, it's not a chasuble. Yes, so our good friend Father Dan uh <laughs> he did a um I don't like to say his real name online because I'm not I'm not uh, a cop. Uh but he did a little photoshop of a chasuble and on that chasuble there's a a beaver that's got uh, a maple leaf Mm -hmm. on its chest it's got boxing gloves and it yep. feels very canadian and so i said that i'm going to buy this chasuble for you <laughs> have you bought it yet i have not <laughs> i have not bought it yet but you know what's i that's something that definitely could be done and probably wouldn't break the bank either it probably yeah it could probably be done i would how i i mean because i've seen i've seen worse ones for for like independence day and stuff like that Oh, absolutely. So, but that's the thing. Like, I'm okay with joking about that on Twitter, but I would yeah. never actually, because you would never wear it. It would feel exactly. It would feel like sacrilegious too. It so, would be like wasted money. Yeah, I'm willing to go pretty far for a joke, but yeah. I kind of ended at like the mass. And I think that's a yeah, fair yeah, line yeah. to draw. But what, what 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 do you do for Canada today? Do you have like um, do you, do you have like um? There's fireworks usually at this... uh, like maple syrup and no no I don't know I. 
to be honest, I still struggle with the what is Canada, anyways. To be honest, so mm. I've never really felt we had an identity. Um, it's usually around products, which isn't really a very stable way of, you know, mm-hmm. when you say, oh, we're about snow and hockey and um, and Molson Canadian. That's yeah. not really an identity. That's fair. So see, we suffer. Uh, I don't really know what it means to be Canadian, to be honest. Still, but anyways, wow. uh, this got do, real deep. Yeah, it's got real deal. Uh, but we, I actually had to go down to Victoria on Sunday, so I had to go do spirit direction for someone. And then, uh, shout out Natalia. And then, um, I br- it's funny, I brought stickers down to give to people, and then yeah. I forgot to give them to them. <laughs> so you just, like, had them on, like, your person, but you just didn't? Yeah. Yeah, and I went to uh, see some friends who are in from Toronto for a few weeks for their sister's wedding next week. So I went to their family's house for dinner and hung out with them. And then on Monday, I said mass. We had we had the there's um, there's a mass for your nation or something like that. So we did that at the cathedral. And then I went golfing with the vicar general. Oh yeah. And then uh, I was like, he paid for golf, so I said, oh, I'll take you for lunch. And he's like, do you want to go to Wendy's? And I'm like, is the Pope Catholic? There you of go. Of course, yeah. I want to go to Wendy's. I had Wendy's two days in a row. It was great. Uh, um, and then I just kind of oh, I went to go see a movie. Which what was movie? great. I went to go see Toy Story Four. Uh is that is that new? Yep. Really? Yep. It was good. It was good. It's probably my least favorite of the four Toy Stories, but it's yeah. still good, and it still has. It just it's it lost some of its charm from the first couple films I found, but yeah. uh, but it was good. And then I just sat around and rest and read all day, which was kind of great. That actually is great. So it was a very it was a very restful day. Yeah. I just realized something. So I'm at the mm-hmm. end of my day. Mm-hmm. Um, I have nothing else. Uh, going on today and so as we said in the podcast i have my having myself a drink and look what i have i have crown royal i'm drinking oh, it there right you now. go you see it's very a fine apropos. canadian whiskey so uh, i accidentally am celebrating canada day there you go you're welcome uh, i go before we uh, introduce i wanted to say one more thing this is kind of outside the canada day thing i came up with a really cool idea that i shared uh-huh. with the priest dm that i want to kind of share here too yeah so we need new um things for our altar servers in our parish because the albs that we use are falling apart. They're like over 20 years old. They don't fit half the people. They're just junk, right? It's time to let them go. Yeah. And I'm like, we didn't really have any room in the budget to buy them. So I came up with an idea. I came up with a kind of a guild for supporters. And for when you, if you donate $150 to the, to the parish for, for the, for this, um, to buy new cassocks and surpluses for the altar servers, you get uh, you have your name sewn in a cassock, and then um, yeah. we'll and then we'll all pray for our the donors every time we serve, and then there'll be a mass once a month for the next year, said for all the donors. I came back this morning, and already I had eight donations. Oh wow! Yeah, awesome. I was like, oh, that worked. Yeah, this actually, of course, it worked because that's what the church has done for the longest time. Yeah, like for hymnals, for stained yeah. glass windows, for pews, you stick a person's name on there. You say a mass for everyone who's done that, and uh, it's amazing when they yeah. give them something concrete. They they just come out and yeah. give it. It's great. Yeah, it's amazing. I was you shocked. Know, we should do that same thing with. Um, you know, be a good idea if we do that same thing with like indulgences. And we can oh. just kind of put a price on those yeah. and sell exactly. those. And then we could build um, a really – I bet you could even build something like St. Peter's Basilica if we had an idea like that. We could build you a new parish for Holy Spirit. Yeah, that would be something. Yeah. Just talk to Bishop Zubik. I'm sure he can just yeah. – he, he has, guys, he's got authority over certain local indulgences. So, I think uh, so. That's how that works, You right. can start selling them in Pittsburgh. So I, I'm Father good. Harrison. I'm Father Anthony. Welcome to Clerically Speaking. And yeah, so uh, – 
as of yesterday, mm -hmm. in my three years as a priest, yeah, I have been assigned to 11 different parishes. Because <laughs> now those seven are one parish, right? Yes. So my first assignment, <coughs> excuse me, my first assignment was uh, three parishes. Second was mm -hmm. seven. And I have technically a new assignment to the new parish of Holy Spirit. You also have a new assistant. Yes. So our beloved um, Father Bill, he is uh, moving to help uh, another priest. So he's he's um, leaving our parishes. And it's very tough because he's been here for five years. He's he's beloved, um, a great priest, a really good guy. Mm -hmm. um, but these are things that have to happen. And we are getting a newly ordained priest, Father Brendan Dawson, who is yeah. great. Uh, I'm excited for him. Is and he older or younger than you? He is older than me. I am still. Oh, wow. I am still the youngest priest in the Diocese of Pittsburgh. Wow. I know. But, uh, I mean, I, I surpassed him in wisdom and experience and uh, overall priestly uh, uh, chutzpah, uh, right. if you will. So right. there is that. But it'll be exciting to you know have him moving. He's moving in the uh, 15th. Mm -hmm. And it was funny, you know, um, as, as crazy as bringing seven parishes into one is, it's kind of working. Yeah, nice. And, like, there are really exciting things happening. Like, we are doing this whole evangelization thing. Yeah. Um, you know, Patrick, our youth minister, uh, has like jumped in and wants to do like evangelization stuff. So we're working on that. And it's mm -hmm. excellent. We're mm -hmm. uh, stuff. It's going pretty well. Like it's not easy. Yeah. It, um. It's it's still gonna be difficult, but mm -hmm. there's a really good energy uh, among the pastoral team and the people who are working in things, and it's it's exciting. It really nice. is. It, it's a it's a fun assignment. Um, yeah. The people are great, and we're we're actually gonna be building something which is it's it's cool it's very cool so, wait you're gonna actually build a church or well we don't know about that okay. um so what are you building just, then uh just a kind oh, like, of oh sorry like in a metaphorical sense sorry yes yes i, yeah, yeah, I yeah. realized that after um, i asked the question yeah, yeah, yeah. so like we're like <laughs> we're moving forward with this evangelization thing we're yeah. you know building a youth group we're reforming um faith formation and you only have one pastoral council one right, finance right. committee, exactly. so your meetings are going to be a lot less, actually. And you have more people to draw on for different activities. Exactly, exactly. And it's already started to happen with even stuff like, you know, daily mass, people who are volunteering for this, coming from our uh, various of, of our other old parishes and stuff. And it's mm -hmm. uh, like, we're, I mean, we're building a new parish. And it's now, it's did neat. you close down any of the churches? We have not touched any of these sites, any of the church okay. buildings yet. Okay. Um, that will be coming down the line because yeah. we we don't need them all, right. and um, it would be irresponsible um, to to do that. So that will be uh, something we're looking at. Um, but like right now on the docket are you know finding people for the positions that we're you know working on uh, mm -hmm. a lot of other stuff. But uh, yeah, so that'll be tough. That'll be a tough thing when we finally close down buildings. But that's a that's a process too. Because, yeah, yeah, it just, it's a process. Yeah, cool. Well, speaking yeah. of buildings, you know, his theology was known, like, as the cathedral of theology. You know, it was Ooh. just this build. It's St. Thomas Aquinas and the Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Yeah, that was that's one of your better ones. You got that K 
Canada Day energy flowing exactly. through your brain, I think. This I is also exciting. literally just had a beer. And yeah. And I just had lunch with a with a parishioner, and yeah, it was just really good. He's really he's really keen on some evangelization stuff. So it's kind of nice to find someone who's passionate about it, who wants to help you, and so it's just not all on your shoulders. Yes, absolutely. Because that's the way it usually is when you're just a pastor in a small place. So, the Summa Tweetologica. The Summa Theologica was St. Thomas Aquinas' summary of theology, and the Summa Tweetologica is our summary of things we found interesting on Twitter. The first one is from producer Nick. He gets a, he gets a, he's been tweeting a bit more lately. Yeah, I think he has been. I I feel like it's his first. If if it's not his first, it's only his second, because we normally don't. Yeah. uh, I mean, let him. Well, like, let's let's just be honest. He's not that yeah. good at Twitter. You know, I don't want to say this like out loud to our millions of listeners and to producer Nick, who is editing the podcast right now. But um, <laughs> not not that not it's it's awkward. It's awkward. <laughs> we love you, producer uh, Nick. You're we the best. You. You're the best. <laughs> uh, actually, this one got a this one got a lot of likes. Actually. Oh, yeah. Uh, at Mass today, the priest preached about people leaving Mass early and posed the question, what if the priest left early during your funeral because he had other things to do? Wowzers. It's intense. It's intense. I was like, I think he's got a good point. I mean, I think there's uh, there's different elements of where you can kind of quote-unquote leave, but I think he's talking about like you've received communion and you leave the church type of thing. Yeah. I mean, I've seen people who come in for the first 10 minutes and then leave. Really? Oh yeah, it's weird. It's just the weirdest thing. It's like what? what, what <laughs> you I'm know like, when like you know when like oh good. Um, I, I did the I did my confess. I did I, I I reflected on my sins. I asked for forgiveness, and I'm done. Yeah, but like you know, um, this ever happened to you? Maybe in college or in seminary or whatever school. Like you walk into a a class that's not the class you're supposed to be in, and you like sit down, mm-hmm. and it's only ten minutes into the lecture that you realize you're not supposed to be there. Maybe. It's got to be the same thing, right? I'm guessing or something. Like or... they thought they were going to like, I don't know, some other church. Uh, it's very interesting. Actually, in this parish, uh, years ago, there was a Polish priest here. And he had a sign back up at the at back of the church that said, remember, Judas left the Last Supper early. Dude, Polish priests are intense. And if some I mean, people would leave, try to leave right after communion, he'd get the altar servers to grab the candles and go follow the people because they literally had the presence of Christ. So they, it was also a way to guilt them into staying. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that you sign know, about Judas though. You know, it's like, yes, yeah. he also left early. Yeah. And you know, um, actually fun fact, uh, the priest that Nick's quoting here, he's, he's like a, a Polish priest. He's got the accent and everything. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, exactly. And it's really funny to hear uh, producer Nick's like, uh, he tells me stories about this guy's homilies all the time and they're, yeah. they're, they're really good. Yeah. Just hearing Nick do the impersonation of it is great. But <laughs> I mean, so a lot of times when this matter is brought up, uh, I think one objection I hear is, you know, I've got family, I've got kids, mm-hmm. I've got things to do. Um, you're making this all about yourself. You know, right. you're just upset that, um, and you know what? Part of it is I'm upset. You know, mm-hmm. I was at assignment for three years. There are parishioners I literally never met, mm-hmm. never shook their hand, never yep. said hello to them. Even though these are my spiritual children, they never had time to even say hi to me. So yeah, yeah does that hurt me? Yeah. But I think the more important thing is behind this is, it's not so much even the leaving early because there are times where there are good excuses i remember speaking with a parishioner who has to take care of their their ailing uh spouse Mm -hmm. and the way they work out where someone can watch their spouse is that they have to leave early so that their 
you know, daughter who takes care of the dad can then go to mass. It's it's really like that's what they need to do to leave early to make all this stuff work so they can make different mass times. Or uh, whatever reason, sometimes stuff just happens and mm-hmm. you have to leave a little early. Uh, that's fine. But what worries me is what's the attitude behind that? If you're leaving early just mm-hmm. because of a parking lot thing mm-hmm. or just so you can get to a breakfast place earlier, what you are saying whether you like it or not, whether you're willing to admit this to yourself or not, is that mass isn't as important as these other things you right. have to do. And so it, you might say, oh, well, I've fulfilled my obligation. If mass is only an obligation, you do not have love for Jesus Christ. Yeah, That sounds really harsh, but it's true. Because if this whole thing is just an obligation, that's all it is to you, mm-hmm. that's not love. Obligation is a good thing. And it's an aid to love. Yeah. Sometimes you just need discipline. Sometimes you have to just do the hard thing because you love someone and you don't feel it. But if all the relationship is, is obligation, if this is just a check mark for you, then there's something deeply wrong with your spiritual life that you need to evaluate. The other point I didn't forget, though, was then you yes. have the opposite problem of people like showing up like at the Our Father. Like during, oh, yeah, like, especially, like during week, especially during weekday masses, I've, I've noticed that. They'll show up yeah, at like, the so- Our Father and they'll still go up to communion. I'm like, you haven't. It's not like I, I find like there's this this overemphasis on the Eucharist where people like forget that you're receiving the Eucharist as the culmination of the Mass, right? Oh, oh, I, I um, so I do remember my other point now. Um, uh, um, so it's not it, it's not just about the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the culmination of the whole action of the Mass, and you need to really try to be there for the whole thing. I mean, like if you're going to be late because of things outside your own fault, you know. Fine, but if you if you've gotten there after the gospel, don't go to communion. Yeah, is my is kind of my rule. Well, uh, I think I, it's not an overemphasis on the Eucharist; it's yeah. a misunderstanding of the Eucharist. It's like this is my magic token. This is exactly. my 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 ring in Sonic yeah. or my uh, my mushroom in Mario. I've got it. I powered up. Now yeah. it's time to go. It's like that's not what our Eucharistic Lord is. Right, he's not just an object that you get to a check mark and right. a gold star like he's he is jesus christ right um and we need to keep that in mind as we receive him and not just that also remember this is the other point i was going to say that i remember now um is and it's actually one thing i kind of miss being a, as a priest because i think it's reasonable that at the end of mass you're out there to greet people as they leave yeah right but when i was not a priest <laughs> i would always before i'd go to leave the church i'd pray for a few minutes yeah. Because, you know, you've just received Jesus. Like, this is a time to give your own personal Thanksgiving again to prepare yourself as you kind of go back out into the world. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I'm just kind of amazed how quickly people are to leave the church. I'm like, but, like, the best thing in life just happened. It's like, you know, have you ever been to, like, a concert that was just so amazing? You just kind of hung around the chair for a bit or a sporting event or something like that. You just kind of hang around. Yeah. Because it was just so amazing. you got to kind of take that in. Well, that's what we should be doing at the end of every Mass. we got to just kind of take it in because, like, we just had... We just were at the most significant event of our life. Yeah. No, I, I absolutely agree. It also reminds me of something that happened in seminary. Um, so I had, at, one semester, I had a class right after, basically, Mass. I had to get to Duquesne. And, you know, you often wouldn't have time for breakfast because some of the uh, the priests for, at the seminary didn't realize that we actually have, like, classes and things. So they would mm-hmm. just have, like, 45-minute long yep. uh, daily Masses. I'm not bitter about that at all. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, one time we got yelled at by one of the formators saying, you're leaving right away. 
right after mass like yeah. everyone else is doing a, a thanksgiving and we were just like we would very much like to stay and have thanksgiving but when our daily mass is 45 minutes long we're gonna yeah. be late for our class you know yeah. there's a few times when in seminary i didn't i was kind of quick to get out of the chapel mm-hmm. this is not perfect but i'm going to admit it um tuesdays and thursdays were hot breakfast and usually on Tuesdays, you could smell the bacon waffling into the chapel. <laughs> and if you didn't get in line quick enough, there would not be any bacon left because everyone ahead of you will take 10 or 12 pieces because yeah. it's all you, it's just there, right? There's no... And so you, right. if you wanted to make sure you got bacon, you had to get in line like right away. And especially like early on in seminary, a lot of those guys, a lot of us entering seminary, we, we have a severe lack of virtue. Mm-hmm. That seminary was hopefully... Inst- oh my goodness, now we're talking yes, about seminary yes. stories yes. of breakfast, right? So... <laughs> I was on the liturgy committee for my minor yeah. seminary. You know, very important that be on a liturgy committee when your seminary has 12 guys in it, whatever. And uh, someone was talking about, once again, the mass times and the hot breakfast and kind of jokingly said, you know, some guys have trouble because they you know, they really want to make sure that they get their eggs while they're still warm. And he kind of made it as an offhand comment. Mm-hmm. And the guy, the, the our formator who had been running the meeting and not really paying attention, to be honest, even though there's only like five people in the meeting, he was kind of like zoning out. All of a sudden he gets super serious and he takes off his glasses and he stares this poor, poor seminarian down and he says, let me make myself perfectly clear. Eggs are secondary to the holy sacrifice of the mass. <laughs> and an icy chillness like went over the room. And that was, what, of course, that became the big line in seminary. Whenever yeah. anything was talked about, like, excuse me, sir, do not forget that eggs are secondary to the holy sacrifice of the mass. That's awesome. I that's love a, it. I'm, that's, that's actually the sign that I'm going to have put up in the back of my church. There you go. There you eggs go. are secondary to the holy sacrifice of the mass. There you go. Thank you. Nice. What do you got? Nothing. Give me a second. Bum, bum, bum. Producer Nick does not like it when I go bump a bum because then he can't make a clean break when he edits. He's like, just shut up if you don't know what you're doing. It makes it easier for him. I, I noticed how he, uh, I noticed some of his editing, editing skills last episode. Yeah, he's actually yeah. pretty good at what he does. He's actually really, this podcast is only good because of him. Pretty much. Like, it would be, it would be okay if it was just us. Yeah. But what makes it the best Catholic podcast on the internet really is Producer Nick. That's right. Okay. So this is one from last week, but I really liked it. We didn't get a chance to talk okay. about it. This is from Haley Stewart at Haley Carrots. It is morally licit to replace all gather hymnals with St. Michael hymnals, fill cry rooms with cement, and install altar rails under cover of darkness. Send tweet. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on here. Mm-hmm. First of all, uh, I'm all about revamping the whole hymnal tradition. Yep. If we're going to do like hymns, let's actually do ones that are, because this is the thing, this is the thing. Like I know, I think sometimes on my Twitter account, or when I talk about this, I can come across as like anti-American and I'm, I'm honestly not. But I am. America, the be- which is fair because you're from Canada and I exactly. get that. I think it's good to have a healthy hatred for your neighbors, right? That's exactly. what Christ tells us. So, exactly. uh, but like the idea <laughs> of singing America the Beautiful, it's like, what are we praising? Exactly. At, at, at this, at the holy sacrifice of the mass, mm-hmm. where we come to worship God, what's our closing or opening hymn praising a country? That's idolatry. Yep. I'm not saying it's a bad song, but it has no place, no place in the liturgy. Mm-hmm. And, and this is the biggest thing. You know, I'm really strict about this. Um, 
when it comes to any kind of secular holiday, I'm, I'm always very hesitant to talk about it or do anything about it at the Mass. Not because these things can't be sanctified, but because right now in our Catholic culture in the West, there's such an emphasis on the subjective part of Mass and what yeah. does Mass do for me. Right. So it's my special day. I want my special blessing. It's this holiday. So let's celebrate this holiday. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, like the ideas of like the saints days or the solemnity of even a regular Sunday that gets lost. Yeah. We lose the objectivity of what we're doing. It all becomes about my feelings and me. And I really have no patience for that. Now I understand a lot of priests have supported this over the years, implicitly or explicitly, and that takes a while for people to learn and for that culture to change. Mm -hmm. But that's why I avoid any kind of stuff like this if I have control over it. Right. Which, you know. Well, here's the thing. Yeah. Hymns should be abrogated. Oh, we're going deep. Yeah. Okay. Explain. Explain. Him, uh, I was actually asked this by a listener on Sunday night when I was visiting him and his family, David. Um, he was saying... Oh, why don't? What's this about? Why, like he was asking about hymns in the church. I said actually, there should be no hymns. Bum, we bum, should be bum. we should be using antiphons, which are words from the Psalms or the Scriptures, which are a response using God's. Where we're kind of it's essentially responding to the big word of God, i.e., mm -hmm. the revelation of God through the holy sacrifice of the Mass, by talking back to Him with His words through sacred Scripture. So the antiphons are a response um, to God to say, like, we're, and it's, it's kind of the church's way of kind of encapsulating in, in German, germ form what has just been said to us or what the day is about, what the mass is about, etc. So antiphons actually have, they're not like, you know, maybe if you go to weekday mass, like that's what, kind of what I do right now. It's, I just say the opening antiphon, mm -hmm. um, but actually they're meant to be sung. They are a yeah. sung response. And actually, and those are... So for the opening of Mass, you should be having the opening antiphon with a psalm should be mm -hmm. the opening of the Mass, not a hymn. So so I do the same thing. For daily Mass, I'll just you know say the antiphon. But if any of that was confusing, just imagine this. You go to Mass. You don't have to pick up a hymnal. There's no extra announcement. There's no flipping through pages. There's no none of that. But there's just a verse that applies directly to that day. That was hand chosen for that day that fits perfectly. And you just repeat that over and over again. So you hear it once, you hear it twice, and that's in your head. You don't have to worry about it. You know it right away and you can just sing it. And then when the priest gets to his place, it stops and mass continues. It makes mass flow much better. It takes away all that. Cause, I mean, to be honest, one thing that this is a personal thing that I cannot stand. <laughs> once I get to the seats and everything's ready to go, you sing like three more hymns. Like, hey, if you want to go around singing hymns, that's great. Have yourself a festival of praise, and that's wonderful. It's just, okay, so that's a pet peeve. But I think if you got people to do this once or twice, you would see it's actually much nicer. Yeah, exactly. So, um, <laughs> And also, that's what the church kind of says that we should do, but no yeah, Exactly. This will be in my Vatican II book. Um, yeah. Uh, and and like even stuff like altar rails. Actually, I think I'm kind of convinced more and more they should be standard in every church. I actually know. I'm going to go even more trad. Let's bring back the rude girl. Uh, ah, my gosh, I just totally messed up the name. Try again. The, uh, ah. Rude. Rude screen. Screen. Thank you. <laughs> Man, I am really out of it today. The rude screen. Let's just bring back the rude screen, you know? Let's just go all the way back. Uh, that's, that's how trad I am. It's beautiful. We'll explain the rude screen on another yeah, episode. Yeah. So let's uh, talk about Patreon pontifications. 
Patreon pontifications. You support us, we read your tweets. Please consider donating to our Patreon. Money goes to paying for our equipment and podcast hosting fees, as well as paying producer Nick a just wage for all the work he does. Any money collected that goes beyond that will be donated to the missionaries of charity. Go to patreon.com slash speaking to have a chance at your having your chosen tweet or possibly email. we got to still work on that with Patreon stuff, but uh, talked about on the podcast. And this week's chosen tweet is from... Joshua at oh my underscore Josh. I like that handle. It's a good handle. And he chose a tweet from uh, the great Pat- Father Patrick Hyde OP. He's at Father Patrick OP. And I think you'll like this one, Father Harrison. Vocation discernment made easy. Are you an adult, single Catholic who has thought about a vocation for at least six months? If yes, are you turning from sin, praying daily, and having greater recourse to the sacraments? If yes, Enter the seminary slash convent. God will do the rest. Kind of like it. Kind of like it. Kind of like it too. It's like, yeah. Because, well, yeah, okay. I got, well, I have a few things, but you go first. Yeah, I think, and this is something that we've kind of encouraged uh, people to do, is that I think there's a lot of dragging of feet when it comes to the sermons. Mm-hmm. And I think there'd be a lot less pain if you just go and join seminary for a year. Yeah. Or if you just go and discern with um, a convent for a year. Yeah. Because that's, I mean, this is the big thing, like, especially the first years of formation of either religious life or the seminary is to put everything aside and address the question, is God calling me to? So if you're someone who who keeps thinking about it and you're actively pursuing holiness and you feel this tug on your gut, how about make your life a lot easier instead of, you know, torturing yourself for four or five years, just go do it. I think something about that. Mm -hmm is an emphasis that we need to to recapture yeah and i think so two things first at the very least there's an attempt to turn away from sin right like right i think you should not expect yourself to be absolutely perfect we're going to seminary or or religious life because it's a it's a long time and you have time to work and if you can't change those things then maybe okay yeah then it's like okay i mean i'm not called here or whatever right but um that's one thing but the other thing this is where i get a little hesitant with it in one way at least with diocesan life because i don't know what it's like with with your diocese but i know a lot of dioceses if you choose not to continue they put the debt back on you for the time you went to school there is that yeah and that's expensive yeah. You know, seminary, like it's about $25,000 a year to send someone to seminary, right? You know, um, that reminds me of something happened. Uh, one of my very, very, very best friends, uh, Carl, he's on Twitter, and uh, he was with me in seminary. This this guy, he had a full scholarship for music to WVU, mm-hmm. and he left that. And it's not like his family is like rolling in dough either. This right. is a huge deal that he got to go to college. So, uh he leaves all of that because he feels called to the seminary, called yeah. to the priesthood. He spends two years in seminary and discerns out. Now he has a wonderful family and all that stuff. Uh, anyway, uh, there's someone who's asking a question on Twitter, one of these theological questions or whatever, and Carl answered it like really well using great philosophical terminology. It was good. It was a good answer. So I said, great job, philosophy, Carl. And he said, thanks. I went into a lot of debt just for this moment. And he was alluding to the fact that like, oh yeah, you got to use your philosophy degree for something. Uh, now, now, I think he would say, and I, I think a lot of guys I know would say, they don't regret going to seminary. Right. But yeah, that is a cross. But you here's know? my thing though, honestly, mm-hmm. with how many people actually go to seminary, even if it got increased with that, 
that is such a small cost to a diocese that I think the diocese should just take the risk. And if someone, because here's the thing, often if a guy goes to seminary, let's say for two years and he discerns out, you now have a man who's gone through two years of intense spiritual formation, who's probably going to have a family and good chance he's probably actually going to stay within the diocese. Yeah. You now have, you now have someone who's going to be a great fruit for your diocese. That's worth the money that you sent them there for, even if they don't turn out to have a, a priestly vocation. Yeah. No, actually, that's a great point. I love that point. Because it's funny, because speaking of my buddy Carl again, like his daughter, who is, you know, just a little girl, is already, you know, talking and thinking about stuff about a religious life in the convent. Yeah. Uh, now, it, and who it's knows, just, right? Like, that's the thing. You knows? don't know if the fruits are those, right? But, but definitely that is an investment. If you're investing in, in the people of God, yeah. of course that's going to help the church. So exactly. I think that's a great point. Because yeah. it's like, okay, I get it. Let's say, I don't know, how many, how many seminaries does your diocese have right now? Oh, we usually hover around 30-ish, I think. I don't, okay. I don't know the exact number. All right. So we just ordained four guys. Yay. So 30-ish, I'd say about half of those actually make it, right? I would say, let's see. Um, no, I would say maybe two-thirds. Because I would say the guys who are farther along, once you get to major seminary, okay. you tend to stay. Right. Okay. So, but, you know, and let's say the average is most guys, I'd say they leave within two years-ish usually yeah. after if they discern that this is not for them. Okay, so that's 10 guys out of a course of five, you know, whatever. That's Okay, it's $500,000. It's not nothing to sneeze at. But at the same time, it's it's not like dioceses, most dioceses work on multi, multi, multi-million dollar budgets. And I think, I don't know, I just feel like if we can pay out a lot of, okay, well, okay, here's ready for a really hot take. You know about ready, this. ready for a really hot take? Oh, it, I, I mean, it, I, I, see it, now, I used can... to get excited. I used to get excited for your hot takes. Now I worry for you because you're my friend and people are mean to you. Sometimes. No, actually, so I think people are going to be on board with this one. <laughs> okay. If due to lousy management of priest personnel has caused the church to get into all these financial situations with settlements, if we can pay that much for settlements. We can pay this little for men who went to seminary and discerned out. I'm just gonna let that simmer for a little bit. Uh, yeah, it, 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 I mean, okay. Th- th- there's two things. Two things. One, sure, but you can't just magically make money up I know, here if there's I know, no money. I know, I know, I know. But, but but I would say this. I would guarantee you, instead of like some vague bishops appeal every year. Mm-hmm. Instead of some vague raising money for the diocese every year, mm-hmm. I would I would bet if you took up a collection, say all of this money will go to seminary formation. Yeah. This collection, all of it goes to seminary formation. No BS, straight seminary. Mm-hmm. That collection would be huge. Yeah. Because even with everything going on, the people of God still love their priests yeah. and are willing to sacrifice for them. And I think here's a few things. First, I think... Um, I do think that you like actually in our diocese. I know that our vocations fund is is one of the few funds that actually has a lot, a lot of money in it because people will leave bequests for it and stuff like that. We uh, have no, mm-hmm. we have no issues paying for seminarians to go to seminary, which That's is great. really great, right? But here's the I, maybe, maybe then it's okay. Let's say you discern out. We are not going to, um, we're not going to put this debt back on you because I mean, I think there's a bit of a social justice thing in that too, if if I can use the term. Uh, yeah. This person really has sacrificed two incredibly yeah. important formative years of his life. Or, and if you're going to go to, um, 
imagine going, you want to start a family and already you have a $50,000 debt hanging over your head. Like that's a, that's a, that's a tough yeah. crutch to, to get moving forward with. Right. So, yeah, you're right. But, but maybe yeah. the church can also say, you know what? No, we're not going to do that. But in return though, we would like you to, you know, we want you to get involved in your parish somehow. Like, uh, you know, as long as you do these things in your parish or something like that, we, we will forgive the debt. You know, you know, two years of service, like you're going to help, you're going to help the youth group or something like that or yeah. for two years. And if you do that, we'll, we'll forgive the debt. Yeah. No, I love this idea. Uh, this is making me think about all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Cause yeah. Cause I mean, people forget these men, even if they've only spent two years in seminary, they, you know, they were giving their life yeah. to the church Yeah. and the church as a good parent should take care of them. Cause I, uh, so there's that. There's also, or, I mean, it's a bunch of stuff you could do. Or how about like, if you went to seminary, if you have kids in the future, they get to go to Catholic school for free Yeah. or something, you know? Yeah. And, and I think, I think you make a difference between, and this could be tricky as well. I could see this going wrong, but I think it's something you have to allot for. Like if you're dishonorably discharged from seminary, yeah. that's one thing, you know, if like, oh, this entire time in seminary you were dating or this entire time right. in seminary, you're breaking all of our rules right. or the entire time you failed all of your classes. Or you're doing then, illegal stuff or something like right, that. Like there right. should be, a, like, okay. yeah, there could be a, like a morality clause, right? Right, exactly. Something like that. Yeah. But like, if you're just honestly, like God's not calling me to this and the church agrees and then, yeah, we should take care of our, of our sons, yeah. our brothers. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I don't know. I just, I feel, well, cause yeah, this is the other thing because then it, it actually, it inhibits your proper discernment because you start to think, wait, if I don't go through with this, I'm oh, going to have this debt hanging over my head. Yeah. And that can, that is, I mean, it, listen, it's not the best way to think, but that is something that can go through your discernment. Mm -hmm. so. And as hard as it is to enter seminary, sometimes it's harder, even harder to leave because <clears throat> yeah. people understand they think you failed. You have to go back to your home parish and be like, oh, you weren't strong enough to make it. And yeah. all that stuff is yeah. so wrong. We've been very so. liturgical. and Well, thank you uh, to um, who again? Sorry. It was oh my Josh. Oh my underscore Josh. Thank you. Uh, and to Father Patrick for those tweets. Uh, thank you to everyone for your support. Since we're being very presbyteral this podcast, it seems. We are. So let's continue the, the presbyteralness with pres presbyteral exhortations. <laughs> <laughs> I can speak. And now it is time for presbyteral exhortations. Oh, yes. yes. Quite good, quite good. Indubitably. Mm -hmm. oh, I bet they can't wait to learn. They're going to learn so much. It's my favorite part. It's the best part. Yes, quite, yes. All right. Presbyteral exhortations. I like how you, it has been a steady, steady decline in your segues. First one, great. Decline since then. There you go. Thank you. I appreciate. You're welcome. I just, appreciate just the humble, analysis. yeah, humble <laughs> analysis there. All right, I want to talk about something that is important to talk about. Um, I, I put out a tweet on Facebook or not Facebook on Twitter last week about uh, I'm writing a book, a possible book for our Sunday visitor on kind of like an introduction to Vatican II for the average layperson. Mm -hmm. I was just looking out for suggestions for book titles, and of course, even though I put serious. <laughs> Twitter is Twitter. Like not, no, you had like 200 responses and none of them were serious. Yes, no, half of them were serious. Were they? Yeah. Yeah, half okay, of them I didn't were read serious. Those. I was only reading the funny ones. Half, and actually it did help me. I'm an external thinker, so it actually helped me to kind of formulate <laughs> a, a title. But um, um, 
Zach Mabry of Roman Circus Podcast, you know, asked, well, is a book like this even necessary? And we had a really, I, I thought it was actually a really good, respectful conversation, which is mm-hmm. so rare for Twitter. I don't know it if we is. continue, I don't know if we see eye to eye on it still, but it was a very respectful conversation about, is this really important? And yeah. so I want to talk today a little bit of Vatican II. Not so much the documents, but more um, what was going on in the church prior to the council? What was the church like prior to the council? Why did the craziness happen afterwards? And where are we at now? Because I think if you start, uh, I, I want to make a very, I think, a very interesting argument about what the actual effects of the council are. And if you start to understand them and you start to understand the context out of which the council came, you understand this is actually a really important event in the life of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, Zach's point was about like, you know, do we really, you know, maybe it addressed a need for a time, but it doesn't address us anymore. I don't think that's true because I still don't think we've essentially lived out the fruits of the council yet. I actually think we're only starting now to live them out. Yeah. Um, like I think you and I, for example, are, the first priests of the Vatican Jew, the true Vatican II generation. Actually, just us. Just we us. are the first fruits. Literally, Father <laughs> Anthony and myself. Just like John Paul II and Ratzinger lived it out, so now <laughs> Father Anthony and I are living it out. You can be the saint, though. I'll, I'll take on Ratzinger. That's, hey, uh, uh, yeah, you, sweet. You, you can deal. be the saint, although I'm sure Ratzinger will be a saint one day. Oh, yeah. All right, so... And doctor of the church. <laughs> what, what, what kind of... Um, what, what is your sense of what the church was like prior to the council? Because this is a really important thing. I think a lot. I think this is a really important thing to talk about. Well, I think I think there's a common. There's a few common narratives that are out yeah. there, and I've I've learned just enough. And to be honest with our conversations, where I'm hesitant to say what I know for sure. But here, here at least yeah. my perspective, a few of the common narratives. Yeah. So um, very much. Uh, oh, if anyone's seen the bells of Saint Mary's. Yeah. That's basically there's yeah, that. that is so the there's church. this idea that um, like booming vocations, yeah. very good, solid traditional uh, liturgy, all these groups like thriving parish groups, thriving women's guilds and mm-hmm. and uh, holy name societies, mm-hmm. um, well respected, especially like well respected in the country in the West. Kind of like there's a almost like a golden age of Catholicism. And then right. another narrative you will hear is that there was kind of an oppressive nature to the church, that it was too formulaic, that it was suppressing, that it didn't teach it. Mm-hmm. Uh, pray, no, obey, pay, obey and pay? Pay, pray? pray, obey. There we go. That's what, like, there's like that, that it was not a good time or a good uh, place to be a Catholic. It wasn't really Christian. So I think those are like the two major, like it's either right. the best of times or the worst of and, times. And we're, we're talking about... I would say we're talking more about the North American context. Right? North American, let's say 1920s to 19, like yeah. 1900s, okay. early 1900s. One more question. Um, now I know that you were apparently, based on last week's podcast, a goofball during seminary. Um, yes. Do you remember studying about what the history of the 20, like what was going on in theology prior to the council? You know, we didn't get a great... At least the courses I took were really good, mm-hmm. but I didn't get like that very like up into the council that last okay. hundred years so much. Oh boy! So I know a little bit about um, liturgical movements yep. and that kind of stuff, but to be honest, I've been thinking about it a lot. Like I yep. need to like reread some stuff. All right. So um, there's two things there. I think so. The argument I want to make is, and it's very interesting because especially if you talk to people, like especially priests who 
lived through the 60s, all the craziness, and are still priests today. But they were kids or teenagers during the 40s and 50s. They often give you a very different story of what the church was like than what our nostalgia does. I think there is a real danger as Catholics today, especially people our generation, to look to the past with a certain nostalgia. Like you said, oh, that was the golden age, the 1950s. Look at look and look at it statistically, right? Everything. Yeah. I mean, statistically, everything was great, but great stat, numbers. But stats are not the only determining uh, element here. And it was very for me. It was very formative in my time at seminary. One of our professors was a Franciscan, and he, also, he, he was my thesis director actually for my master's thesis. And um, but the stories he tells you about um, formation prior to the council family life prior to the council, parish life prior to the council, it's not all rosy. It was not all rosy. And so the, I'll, I'll get to the theology thing in a second, but here's, this is the proposition I want to kind of put out to people. Okay, the 60s and 70s came and all this craziness happened after the council. And all these men and women left their religious vocations, right? Um, people stopped going to church. People, st the argument I want to make is that History doesn't happen in a vacuum. And those people who left the priesthood and religious life, for example, are the same people who were part of those bursting numbers of the 40s and 50s. Uh, the sex abuse crisis are mostly men, priests who were ordained in the 50s and early. Yeah. So they were in formation, in formation before the council. Exactly. Over and over again, everything that came out after the council in terms of some of this craziness was from people who were formed in this so-called golden age of Catholicism. So I think that should right there start to get us to pause about wait everything was everything was fine prior to the council. It wasn't. Not only that, weird things were already creeping into the church at the time. Um, I, w I read this letter by this women female theologian um, from Germany, Ida Goris. And she's going through this whole litany of, of the spiritual poverty of priests in the parishes in 1949. 1949, like this is like, yeah. Not only that, like, so for example, my parish was built in 1959. And if you ever saw a picture of it, you would think it was built in the 70s. But it wasn't. It was built in 1959, before the council. I've seen churches of with brutalist architecture that were built prior to the council. So all this stuff was creeping in. So the argument I want to, and then so that's that's what's kind of going on historically. All right, like essentially, you're starting to see modernism was actually or had already made an inbreak into the church. Uh, the anathemas of Pius X, etc., they were good, but they didn't actually stop the stop the forces that were coming in. I also do think, and it's something I haven't quite well thought out yet, but we talked a little bit about it last week. I do think the there was a real spiritual poverty that came from being in two world wars. So these people have no spiritual formation. With, like Literally, they've been on the battlefields their whole life. How do you expect them to get formed in their faith? And then they come home and they have kids. What the, they have nothing to hand on to their kids. So this is why, generally, the boomer generation doesn't have as much faith. Not because, I, don't th I, I say this because I don't think it's actually their fault. It's the greatest generation's fault. Bum, bum, bum. bum. Maybe not like their fault, yeah. but like the fact, like the horrors of two world wars. Yeah. Which, you know, we, we watch fun history channel mm -hmm. documentaries about them and mm -hmm. it's fascinating. It can be a hobby, but like to actually live through 
a war exactly that was going on all over the freaking world yeah like what does that do to the human soul exactly um it's oof. when you are literally killing the image of god in the millions yeah you are killing the presence of god in the world yeah right oof, that's good oof, that's cool. so this is all that's going on this is all that's happening and it's and there's a real i would actually say there was um there was an external formalism that betrayed an internal nihilism right people were people were going to church and everything but deep down there was actually no felt faith and mm-hmm. there's a bunch of reasons why that is part of it was formation in the life of the church this is where i want to kind of go into the theology thing so yeah now i know some people are not going to like what i have to say about this but too bad i'm going to say it anyways uh this is theologically speaking so my area of expertise is 20th century catholic theology and mm-hmm. i i will put my cards on the table i am a a firm devotee of the communio movement of theology. So this is people like Balthazar, de Lubac, Ratzinger, Danielu, etc. All these great names of 20th century Catholic theology. These men, when they were studying theology, when they're going through, Je- most of them were Jesuits, um, especially like uh, Danielu, Chenu, de Lubac were all de- Jesuits in France. Um, they were... They, they were kind of formed in the what we call a neo-Thomistic school. Now, this is really interesting because this is where, this again, where this nostalgia kind of comes in. People are like, oh, yeah, look how good that was. Look how good that was. They had, they had a firm foundation. They knew exactly what the church teaches and all these things. But it was, it was actually, I would, I'm going to get a little philosophical here for a second. I would actually call it Kantian because it wanted it to have an overly rationalist view of the faith to the point that it actually destroyed faith. And so, let's yeah. sometimes I think it's okay for us just to get super nerdy on this okay. podcast. So I just want to like, but the, yeah. the, the, the picture you're painting yeah. is it seems so similar to the atmosphere in the church right before the reformation. Mm-hmm. Like they were having their own problems with Thomistic um, theology as right. well. Yeah. There's on one sense, like actually a lot of things are kind of booming in the church. Mm-hmm. Another sense, there's like this like desire to get deeper and have it not just be a formal thing Mm -hmm. it just it seems like the the two atmospheres seem very similar to right and so what these guys in this communal school do they they try to rediscover the fathers and what they do is they bring what i'd say is a healthy relationship between subjectivity and objectivity you see so for example i'll give you an example if you were to ask a neo-thomist thomas thomas uh what is what is revelation Mm -hmm. this is probably roughly i'm kind of paraphrasing this is a standard definition they'd give the revelation of God is the proposition is these truthful propositions that we believe and hold to be true. So like Jesus is the son of God. That's a proposition I hold to be true that he was incarnate. That's a proposition I hold to be true. And that's that's as far as it goes. So there's an objectivity to it. Yeah, these are true propositions. But what is the subjective consequence of this objective truth in me, mm-hmm. right? How does this essentially how do I internalize this? And neo-Thomism tended, I'm not saying it's all universal, but they it tended to not to want to internalize this. So this is the theological place. And so think about this too. You have these men who are going into formation in the 40s and 50s, who are spiritually poor, who have no actual real foundation, who are giving yes to an external formalism, but have no internal coherence to it, and are taught a philosophy and a theology that is not actually Thomistic, by the way. I'm not saying because this is not saying Thomism bad. This is a particular yeah. interpretation on Thomism that was mm-hmm. not in, that was not, I would say, up to snuff with what Thomas actually says. 
Um, and they're taught a, a philosophical and theological system that actually does, doesn't give an answer to the longing of their hearts and actually doesn't feel that, that spiritual poverty. And so these people actually have no substance to their faith life. Mm-hmm. And these are the people who are getting ordained for the church. And I think John the 23rd saw this coming. And he saw what would happen if we did nothing to address this at all. And if you read, um, if you read the, the bull where he convokes the council, it's very interesting how he talks about how he sees the spirit of, the, to speak to the spiritual poverty of modernity. He recognizes that there's a spiritual poverty at play. It wasn't about uh, getting the church to be with the world or anything like that. It was actually about addressing a spiritual poverty of the heart that he saw not just out in the world, but also in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll stop there. Any comments or thoughts? No, that's really good. I'm glad you made the comment about uh, Thomism versus Neo-Thomism. Yeah. Because I think right now, Thomism is very fashionable in the church. And I think in a good way. Yeah. I think popularly, uh, especially with you know a, you know whole podcasts, uh, which are more famous than ours, but not quite as good as ours, like uh, Pines with Aquinas. Yeah. Uh, like a, a re and also scholarship right now has a more holistic and authentic approach mm-hmm. to Thomism. Yeah. Neo Thomism is is not yeah. Thomism. Right. And also um, I, they would, the other the other descriptor for the school of thought is called manualism. Right. So what yeah. would happen is and I this is was told my they they would go to class. The professor would get them to open their manuals and he would just kind of comment on the phrases that were in the manuals and stuff like that. But there was, the thing is, modernity, whether we like it or not, has placed an emphasis on subjectivity, right? So apologetically, we need to address that subjectivity. It's not Mm -hmm. to say that it's not the, we're not saying it's the determining factor in all things, but it has it has a place in the life because we are a human subject. It's actually very interesting. Um, John Paul II, when he was doing his doctoral thesis, he was doing it under the 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 monster of Thomism. He was known Gary Lagrange. Yeah, and Gary Lagrange gave John. He he really tore John Paul II apart for calling God the divine subject. Mm. He says no, no, he's only an object. God is not a subject, and he he felt that that had an implicit modernism to it. Yeah, and John Paul II <laughs> actually fought against that, right? So anyways, but what happens with this council, and this is why I think the council is so important, because it's actually addressing the spiritual crisis that's already going on in the church. And it's doing it by reigniting a faith that is rooted in scripture, in a sacramental life, and in a healthy understanding of what the church is. This is, what the main, this is why the main documents are in liturgy, on the mm-hmm. church, and on revelation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those right. are the yeah. Mm-hmm. Those and are your those are your three hold. And yeah. I would say anyone who doesn't or, or doesn't like the idea of Vatican II, mm-hmm. I, I read those documents mm-hmm. and tell me what's wrong with them. Mm-hmm. I think you could take any reasonable person who considers themselves trad, and there's plenty of unreasonable ones who are just pretending to be Catholic, but like anybody who's like genuinely pursuing the faith and calls themselves trad, you read those three documents and tell me how much you disagree with them. Yeah. Now, some will because they would see like the, the document revelation. It, this is the thing. The document revelation is kind of purposely attacking the idea of a, of, um, a propositional nature of faith, that, that to be a faithful Catholic means I'm just assenting to these truths. The document revelation, for example, is saying, no, there is an event of revelation that cannot be grasped totally with the different formulas of faith, right? Dave Erebum actually says the revelation of God is Jesus Christ, 
Yeah. Which you cannot exhaust, right? Actually, right. I, was, I was just reading this yesterday in Ratzinger's memoirs. Uh, more Ratzinger, more Ratzinger. Um, where he's <laughs> talking, yeah, he's talking about this. He says that actually, this is what he discovered in his habilitation thesis on Bonaventure, that the medievals actually had no, um, didn't understand revelation as we understand that word today. And so, um, for them, revelation was an action. It was God literally unveiling, taking away a veil, and that um, so that revelation was actually always prior to Scripture for them, which actually justifies the idea of the development of doctrine, right? Because if if if, if, if revelation is an event where God is doing something then that event is in and of itself inexhaustible, right? If scripture comes after that and, and is a witness to this revelation, then that's a development right there, right? It's an important development. And then oh, same thing over time. Like this is, this is why like, we, we are always contemplating this act that is always literally in the church. The act of revelation is always present in the church. Um, it's really there. But the... Uh, uh, the development takes time to kind of contemplate sub- sure. as a church on that reality. So how is that different than the idea that the revelation revelation is Jesus Christ? Because I feel like they're related. No, they're the same thing. Okay. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Yeah, they're the same thing. No, I'm saying it's it's not. It's going against the idea that faith is that revelation is just about propositions. I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So uh, this is this is why I think it's really this is why actually I think the council is actually really important. Because if you, especially with, especially with those three documents, now I know some people have real issues with Dignitatis Humanae. That's a whole other can of worms because um, mm-hmm. it talks about um, religious freedom, mm-hmm. even in the con, because some trads will say error has no rights. And so if you are part of a false religion, you actually have no freedom to practice it because you have no rights. I don't agree with that, but that's a whole other can right. of worms. But these three documents, the church, I mean, think about the things that you love today as a Catholic, right? You love the increase in things around adoration. Like actually yeah, Father yeah. Matt Fish made this point actually a few days ago, wait, a few days ago on Twitter, right? Fifty years ago, it would be very rare to hear from a person who discerned the priesthood that he came to his vocation through adoration. Wow. Now today that's almost normative. Adoration yeah. is a key element of the life of prayer for the priest now. That's yeah. huge. Folks, that would not be a reality without the council. I, I can guarantee you this. It would not be a reality without the council. You have adoration, the sacramental, the uh, living the, the liturgical life of the church through the breviary, um, through um, um, through all these different, through the different calendar days and everything like that. Like we were talking about like the processions last week, all these things like that liturgical year. This is, this is starting to really take a hold again in, in Catholic culture that wasn't taking hold before because this is actually the the bastion against to stand against the waves of modernity that are coming against us because it's the means by having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Can I can I give a hot take? Yep. This is an, this is very much an intuition based on some things I know. So I want to get your take on it. I would even say the emphasis and appreciation and well celebrated uh, traditional Latin Mass is impossible without the council. Yeah. I, I completely agree. I like completely the, I think agree. I think because I mean, if you if you hear about you know either and there you find fewer and fewer of them but like priests from that time, the way liturgy was performed and was done is not the same way mm-hmm. it's done today. It's not the same way it's done in the uh, FSSP. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's it's taking the principles 
of Sacrosanctum Concilium and applying them and and like invigorating mm-hmm. the uh, TLM, I would say. I would completely agree because like that letter I referred to earlier from Ida Gores, she actually talks about how the lay faithful would always complain and snipe about how the priest would just mumble their way through the mass quickly just to get it yeah. done with. Mm-hmm. Mass would be 15 minutes sometimes. Uh, I have a formator. They would do um, benediction. Mm-hmm. So they had benediction. He'd be smoking a cigar mm-hmm. in the sacristy as they got ready for benediction. He would put the cigar down. They would go to benediction. He would get back in the sacristy. And the cigar would still be lit, and he would continue smoking it. Yeah. Like, that's the, <laughs> the speed at which things were done at times. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like the irreverence, yeah. Exactly. So this is the thing. It's, it was a formalism and a functionalism that actually betrayed the sacramental lived reality of the church so i completely agree like this and this is why there's this natural movement but all these natural movements in in these younger generations towards a rediscovery of the sacred and the mass wanting to celebrate even whichever form of liturgy reverently and all these things this is all the fruit of the council because this is the big thing and this is the thing that people don't seem to understand about the council john the 23rd alludes to it in the bull about calling the council and ratzinger um in his book um it's one of his interview books. Um, he says that the whole purpose of the council was to give the church a turn towards mission. Mm. And that was the point because John saw that Pope John saw that if we do not do this now, we will not be able to withstand the tide and we will be actually less missionary and we're going to be even smaller and even more gutted than we are now. Yeah. Like, this is the thing. I, I actually believe this. Things would have been worse without the council. Yeah, no, I, I think so too. Because, you know, the the anathemas against modernism those are those are good things. Yeah. But when the church has already lost credibility, <laughs> yeah, you're not going to get a lot of fruit from those anathemas. Yeah. The, the, when the church has already lost its energy and its vigor, um, in one sense, yeah, then you're not going to be able. to, Those things aren't going to be effective. Exactly. The, the whole, you know. The need for the quote-unquote new evangelization yeah that was needed mm-hmm. way before even the council mm-hmm. so the idea of like going out of reasserting things of doing the hard work yeah of basically preaching the gospel and the charisma and getting back to like this needed to be done mm-hmm. because so much faith was already lost and was only being held together by already failing cultural forces mm-hmm. and yeah so i agree and this is the thing. You want to know why this council took a missionary turn? Look at the papal documents prior to the council on the missionary efforts of the church. Yeah, that if, was huge. If, if they exist, if they existed, they were towards third world countries where the gospel hadn't been proclaimed before. Mm-hmm. Now, look after the council. Every single pope is talking about evangelization and being missionary. Like, not mm-hmm. one of them has not talked about evangelization. Well, Paul the six and first... onward. Yeah. Paul well, just the life of John Paul II, mm-hmm. you know, the first pope after the council. Mm-hmm. Like, he was the first pope to be, to really actually be a missionary as yeah. pope yeah. with all of his travels. Exactly. This is the thing. And I mean, there's a whole bunch of stats to back this up, but we've actually, we are, we've never been, it's been a long time since we've been this missionary and we're still kind of in the germ form of it. Because I still don't think, I think we like, again, we like to talk about evangelization, but I think we all are very hesitant to actually do it because it takes a risk that is always scary. Um, you know, it's funny because like uh, my parish, yeah. we just had an evangelization meeting yeah. and like we're just starting to implement now that every aspect of our ministry should have a dimension of evangelization, mm-hmm. you know, bereavement ministry, uh, St. Vincent de Paul, um, marriage prep. We're just, just beginning to start that. 
So yeah, I agree. Yeah. So I think, um, and then just maybe to kind of wrap it up, but um, Vatican II has to be read with Pope Benedict called with the hermeneutic continuity. This is not a break. Now, yes, a lot of crazy stuff did happen in the 60s and 70s, but I don't think those are the fruits of the council. They are the fruit of a certain age that took a very kind of radical spiritualness towards things that wanted to eschew all the physical. I mean, part it's why the hippie movement came out at the time and, and all these radical um, new um, synergy, synergistic religious philosophies were coming out. Uh, it was all about this time that kind of eschewed the body and eschewed physical things and eschewed the letter. Only the spirit matters, right? Hence why people would talk about the spirit of the council. You know, actually, what it really wanted to do was actually change all these things. This actually comes out of the age of the 60s and 70s, which comes out of a spiritual poverty. So these people are looking for something subjective because they've never received it before. So this is, mm-hmm. so this hijacking did happen, absolutely, but it's not the council's fault. Remember first, every council takes a long time to take roots. Yeah. Ah, Nicaea, Nicaea. Athanasius is one of three bishops in the world to actually hold the Nicaea faith after the council. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> nice. And that is a lot worse in some ways than what we're going through today. Yes, it is. Because Arianism is horrible. Um, right. So we're kind of just now kind of in the aftermath, of, which is kind of exciting, too, to be that generation who's actually wanting to authentically look to the teachings of the council to go forward. So this is why I actually think it's still re- relevant, because it actually hasn't been implemented. Yes. And I think only now our generation of priests and lay people actually want to live it authentically, which means a turn yes towards tradition and liturgy, a radical scriptural life, a radical sacramental life, and a radical way, a radical heart to bring the gospel to other people. Yeah. In 20 years, we're going to see the fruit of the council in, in, in very robust ways, I think. I both suspect and hope you are right. I kind of monologued on the lot in that one. Sorry. No, that was great. That was great. And it's funny because you sent me your little, uh, what do you call this thing that you sent me? I sent for you your book? my little section. Um, it was like a sample writing. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, I'm, I'm kind of excited for it. Yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah. No, seriously. Oh, nice. I was like, oh, I got notes. I'm underlining stuff. Oh, cool. I'm like, yes. yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, so I, I think, I, yeah, go ahead. I think, I think there's actually, I mean, honestly, there's not a lot of approachable, um, popular texts that deal with Vatican II. Exactly. There isn't. Deal with the least, I haven't been able to find one. I haven't found any. Like, you know, the, my, yeah. Um, so something that's that's both um, intellectually, like, vigorous, but also can be read by a popular audience, I think is very much needed. And that's because kind of the idea Because people have only book. heard of either the spirit of the council yeah. or those of us who've had the privilege to actually study the documents and yeah. appreciate them. Yeah. It's like to bring that to the wider church I think that's a big gap because I'm writing right now. And I, not just that, I do think too often you hear from people who for no fault of their own, just say, Oh, it was so great that the council did this. And I'm like, it never did. Vatican yeah, to this, Vatican to that. I'm like, actually it never did. So here's my book. Please read it. You know, yeah, it's kind of the, the idea. Stuff you love or hate about the council didn't actually happen. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so this is, so we'll see. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's going to get picked up, but uh, I'm kind of excited to kind of pursue this project. So this is why I want to talk about it. Cause it was kind of on my mind since I was working on this over the weekend. Awesome. Cool. Uh, so thank you for listening to our podcast. Where did my... Uh, here we go. Uh, 
please leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. Tell your enemies too, because Jesus said we must love our enemies. You can find me at Fr Harrison. You can find me at Father Sharapa. Contact the podcast. Receive updates at Clerical Pod on Twitter, Clerically Speaking on Facebook, or email us at clericallyspeaking at gmail.com. Can I say one more thing before we yep. log off? Yeah. Tomorrow's my day off. Yeah. We have many emails yeah. and DMs that we haven't responded to. Tomorrow, I'm making that a priority. Oh, nice. So I'm saying that on the podcast. So by the time you listen to this, I have hopefully responded to you. Sounds I'm good. I'm saying this to make myself accountable. Thank you so much for your feedback. Yes. Some of the stuff we've read and just not responded to. Yeah. Um, but we, we love you all. Uh, thanks for supporting the podcast. Uh, and so just there we go. There we go. God bless you all. Peace.